Well, Father, we've said this many times, but the, uh, the, the weeks roll by. About every four days, it's another week. And uh, the, the, the months seem to have about two and a half weeks in them, and it's, it's just remarkable. That's just the way life is these days. Uh, I, I thank you for these guys and for their uh, steadfastness to be here uh, on Wednesdays and with, with um, I, I remember all the years I, I traveled out of Dallas and I, and I remember thinking five, six, seven, eight years, you know, it'd be great to have a study just to teach every week, just as kind of a base, just as kind of an anchor. And uh, these last six years, it's, it's been just a wonderful thing. So I, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their teachable spirits. I thank you for the work you've done in our lives as we've opened up your word. Uh, we, we keep doing that, Lord, because uh, we cannot live without it. You said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we, we need to be feeding we, we need to be chewing. We need to be meditating. We need to be digesting. Um, we certainly don't need to be anorexic when it comes to the Bible. It's one thing to revere it. It's another thing to read it and digest it. We pray tonight that as we wrap this section up in James, that you would uh, once again speak to our hearts. We're all coming from different places. We've got different things that we're juggling in life. We've got different issues. The fact of the matter is, Lord, everybody here, I mean, if we look around, everybody looks pretty good. Everyone looks like they're doing well. Everyone looks like uh, they've got life under control and things are just pretty much the way they should be. And it's just not that way. There are some guys in here that are carrying unbelievably heavy loads. And they're staggering from the, from the weight of it. And we pray for them, that you would encourage them. Sometimes we just get exhausted. We just get tired of it. And we pray for those guys that tonight you would put courage into them. We pray that you would strengthen them. We would pray that as they go home tonight, that they would be able to sleep. And to sleep deeply. <laughs> Uh, and to rest, to actually rest. We pray that they'd be able to roll those things that are weighing them down uh, onto you. This James book is quite a book. It's pretty hard. This is not a guy who plays games. He gets right with it and right to it. And so as we look at this final segment tonight, we ask you to uh, take it, apply it, give us what we need. That's, that's the job that none of us can do. Only your spirit can do that. You know every guy here. You, you know every issue. You know every need. And... Uh, your mercies are new every morning. Some of us need mercy tonight. So we would ask that you might give that to us as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
James chapter 5 tonight, final segment, final section. Interesting way to end the book. And when I was working on this section, this is a section about healing. It's a section about being healed, healed from sickness. Now, most of us, when we're young, we don't think about that much because when you're young, you're young, and when you're young, you're healthy, pretty much. Um, you think you'll always be healthy. You think you'll always... Um, remember when you used to play basketball and you'd never stretch before you played ball? And you didn't need to stretch? It wasn't an issue. You just get out and play. You just, you just go for it. I, I can remember... Um, I can remember the first time I pulled a hamstring, I was 27, and playing with some high school kids and playing uh, football, and I ran a post pattern, and this kid thought he could keep up with me, and so I, I gave him an elbow to the chops, and I kept going, and all in Christian love, of course, and, and, uh, and he, he could outrun me, but, you know... Um, I, I thought, well, if he takes a minute just to wipe the blood off his jaw, I could probably get past him. And, and I was moving as I was moving. And I'll never forget, I'd never experienced that before. I mean, I was just flat out kicking out as much as I could. And all of a sudden, ah, it, just, it just grabbed. And boy, that took a long time to get over. And uh, I, I just, I'd never understood that hamstring thing before. I'd heard about guys pulling one. Until you do it, it's... And then a couple of years later, um, you know, Wednesday afternoon, some guys were playing a game at the Y. I said, why don't you come by? And, and so I went over to play basketball at the Y and uh, was guarding a guy. And he, he made a move. And I went like that. And I pulled a groin. All, I mean, I just, I just went like that. And, and I remember it took me about five weeks to get that to where I thought I could play again. And I stretched. You showed back up at the Y, stretched, did all the stuff. Got out there, threw the pass to the guy. He went that way. I took a step, and I pulled it again. So um, I'm going to ask Lou if he'll pass out my medical records. We, we've got copies for everybody here tonight. That's usually a privacy issue, but we're all just breaking down, aren't we? Isn't that amazing? I mentioned to you, didn't I, a few weeks ago, I got on an elevator and pulled a hamstring. It, it just, it was, it was embarrassing, but... These things happen as you get older. When we're a kid, we, we never think about this stuff. But stuff happens, and our bodies break down. And there are guys in here that are dealing with different things. There are, gu there are guys in here that, uh, that know their bodies are breaking down. They, they, uh, they are facing some great challenges. And wouldn't it be great... Wouldn't it be great if everyone in here with a physical affliction, wouldn't it be great if everyone could just be healed? Well, that'd be wonderful. What must it have been like when Jesus showed up in those towns around Galilee? You ever thought about that? I, I, I mean, what would that have been like? People that are lepers, Instantly clean, clean. Uh, John 9, the, the man blind from birth. 
eyes were open. You can imagine the mob scene. They had never seen anything like that in their lives. James 5.13. Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. That happened under the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, uses Elijah as an example of a man, uh, a man like you, a man like me, but he prayed earnestly. But he only talks about Elijah and prayer on the heels of praying for those who are sick and for those who are afflicted. It, it seems when you read this at first glance, it, it seems on the surface that this is a blanket promise, doesn't it? First time you read through it, it seems like a blanket promise that if you're sick and you pray and call for the elders, you will be healed. Now, what's interesting about that is this. If you've been with us for our study, you know that at the beginning of James, he begins by talking about trials. And he says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Of the believers that he was addressing himself towards, uh, they all had trials. They didn't all have the same trials, but some of them had physical trials. Some of them, their trials and their afflictions had to do with disease, uh, with their bodies breaking down, with their muscles breaking down. Some of them were crippled. Some of them were not able to walk. Some of them couldn't see. Some of them couldn't hear. Not everybody, but some of them. Were all of them healed? No. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about the apostles. Let's talk about Paul. Paul talks about the fact that uh, the, the signs of a true apostle, he worked among them. He was uh, at times, um, uh, at times he had to undergo the charge that he was not a legitimate apostle because he was not one of the original 12, although the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and personally called him. But he talks about working among you the signs of a true apostle um, with signs and gifts and wonders. Uh, Paul had the ability to, to lay his hands on people and to heal them. Peter had that ability. If you remember in the book of Acts, uh, they would line people up on the street so that the shadow of Peter would just fall on people, just the shadow of Peter. Uh, the, the apostles were men who were given these remarkable gifts in order to authenticate their authority. But is it not interesting that uh, these men with these gifts, let's talk about Paul. Paul had the gift of healing. Paul could heal. Yet in one of his letters, Paul said, uh, note with what large letters I am writing to you with. Paul had a problem with his vision. We don't know what the problem was. We don't know if it was cataracts. We, we don't know what it was. 
But Paul did not have 20-20 vision. Well, Paul had a gift of healing. Why would he not heal himself? See, this in James at first glimpse can sound like it's just a blanket promise. You got a physical illness, call for the elders of the church, uh, they'll anoint you with oil, you'll be prayed for, and you'll be healed. And there are some who have taken it that way. Um, when, when you study the Bible, it's, it's really important that, that you study it carefully, that you examine it carefully. Um, remember when you bought your first house and you went in to, to sign those documents and three days later you came out uh, and, they, and they put uh, sheet after sheet after sheet of very minute um, uh, legalese and six-point type in front of you and they encourage you now before you read before you sign this read it well, I can't even see it <laughs> now uh, attorneys read that very carefully they go over line by line and if you hand that to your attorney he'll read it and he'll catch some things and say well you know we need to change this and change this you, you know how that works when we read the Bible, we need to read the Bible very carefully. There, there, is, a, there, there is a concept called, um, and, and a teaching, and a, a class you can take at any seminary called hermeneutics, uh, from the Greek hermeneua, which means to interpret. When, when, when we read this passage, we have to be careful that we interpret it correctly. You say, well, how do you interpret the Bible? The same way you interpret the yellow pages. The same way you interpret Sports Illustrated. We know how to interpret any body of literature. Most of us haven't sat down and identified the principles by which we get to the meaning of the text. And we've talked about this before in here. Uh, you don't have the right interpretation. We, we, how many times have we heard someone say, well, that's just your interpretation? Well, that's just your interpretation. There's only one interpretation. Did you know that? Of any text, there's only one interpretation. Uh, that's true of the Bible. If you, say, um, if, if you say to your wife on the phone after the Bible study, uh, I'm going to stop by Tom Thumb and pick up some fruit, and then I'll be home. Now, what do you mean by that? You mean you're going to stop by Tom Thumb and pick up some fruit on the way home. Now, somebody could say, well, you see what he really means. Is that metaphysically, he's on a quest for the deeper nectar of life. <laughs> well, you can think that if you want. I mean, if you want to think that, you can think it. But that is not the interpretation. In, in, in any communication, there's one interpretation. And that is the interpretation that was in the mind of the writer who was inspired by the Holy Spirit when they penned the words. Until you have the meaning in the mind of the one communicating, you don't have the interpretation, do you? So you can say something and someone can interpret it 17 different ways, but until they get the exact meaning that was in your mind, they don't have the right interpretation. They're just guessing. Okay. 
This is not a blanket promise that God will heal. I, uh, I was thinking of my maternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother. I, I can remember my, uh, my, my, grand, my grandpa, Grandpa Brown, he, was, uh, uh, he had to quit school at 12. He had to quit sixth grade because his father died. And he had to go to work in the oil fields in the San Joaquin Valley of California at the age of 12 to support his uh, mom and three sisters. And he had a brother who was handicapped. So from sixth grade on, he worked. He was a hard worker and, uh, and actually did pretty well at Chevron and, and climbed to a pretty nice position and then retired and started the furniture store and, uh, you know, studied law at night. And uh, he, he was a hardworking guy but nothing was handed to him. Um, uh, didn't have great health. I remember him when he was my age, 57, and he, was, he could hardly make it from the living room to the kitchen. Because from the time he was about 13, he smoked two to three packs of cigarettes a day. So by the time he was in his late 50s, he was in bad shape. Didn't live much longer after that. Um, my grandma was a, uh, was a tried-and-true Pentecostal. And I'll tell you what, in Bakersfield, California, about every four weeks, um, a Pentecostal evangelist faith healer was coming through town. And he'd set up his tent out there <clears throat> off Chester Avenue, and uh, it was time to go to meeting. And that was always interesting because my grandma was bound and determined that my grandpa was going to go and get healed. Now, my, my grandfather believed in Christ, but he didn't believe in healers. And uh, my, my grandma was a pretty strong woman. Pretty, uh, she'd get her mind set on something, and uh, her mind was set. But he was as uh, strong as she was that he wasn't going to go. Now, I didn't see a lot of this, but years later, my mom told me about it. And uh, she was going to do everything she could do to connive him and manipulate him and get him over to that tent so that the prayer of faith could be prayed and he could be healed. He didn't want to go. In fact, it'd get, it'd get to the point where he'd, he'd get mad and he'd start cussing. He'd just flat start cussing because he, he, he didn't want to go. Um, he died about three years later. And when he died, he got healed. Isn't that true? This is not a blanket promise. Let, let's, let's read it again carefully um, because sometimes these things can be misconstrued. Uh, I mean, I th wouldn't it be great if we could just walk into a children's ward at a hospital and, uh, and pray and anoint children? There's nothing harder than seeing a child suffer. That's the hardest thing of all. Now let's read this. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil. What does that mean? To anoint is to rub. To rub. That's the idea of rubbing. The oil would be olive oil. Um, olive oil was to them what Tylenol is to us. Olive oil was to them, medicinally, what aspirin is to us. When you weren't sure what to do, 
back then, 2,000 years ago, you'd just take olive oil and you'd rub. That was about as far advanced as, as they were. So if, if you're sick, you must call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him, rubbing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That seems to be a blanket promise. But note the phrase. There's a phrase here that you cannot ignore, and this kind of gives you the tip as to what's going on here. The next line says, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Uh, there's an interesting teaching in, in the Scriptures um, that it is possible for believers to get caught in sin and to become ensnared in sin and to become comfortable with sin and to choose not to flee from sin but to pursue the sin. And when that happens, God disciplines a believer. I think that's what's happening here. Um, Warren Wearsby points out that that phrase there, actually the text says, if he has been constantly sinning. It's the same idea. What, what you've got here, this is not a blanket promise. This appears to be a situation where you have a believer who has been in sin. He has been involved in a situation like 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, let's make something clear. Are we saying God doesn't heal? I'm not saying that. I believe God heals whenever God wants to heal. God can do anything he wants whenever he wants to do it. But on the other hand, we cannot command him to heal. We cannot... Um, we, we all scratch our heads. Any pastor will tell you, uh, I, 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 I think most guys that have been in ministry a while would say they have prayed and, they, and people have been restored. People have been healed. Does it happen every time? No, usually it doesn't. You never know what God's going to do. So we're not discounting the power of God. We're not saying that God can't heal. Of course God can heal. But 1 Corinthians 11 gives us a tip. Very interesting passage. Um, it centers around the communion table. When we observe the Lord's table, we take some juice and we take a little wafer or a cracker. They didn't do that. They had a feast. They had a meal. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's no magic in the communion. There's no magic in the cup. There's no magic in the, uh, uh, in the, in the bread. We simply do that to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. We remember in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, the cup is the new, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There it is again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we keep having communion. 
It's a great thing to do, to remember what the Lord did for us. Now catch verse 27, it's significant. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So it's possible to do that in the wrong way. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, and here's what was happening. These guys were drinking real wine. There there was real wine drinking going on in the scriptures. Now that bothers some folks. But it's it's just the way it was. Um, uh, a lot of us grew up in churches where the only view that we felt was, was abstinence, a- complete abstinence when it comes to alcohol. And, and uh, we, we can say this. Here's, here's what we can say. The Bible is very clear that drunkenness is a sin. I mean, there's no question about that. But what about having a drink of wine? Some guys in here have a drink of wine, some guys don't. Now, according to Romans 14, uh, that's an individual choice. That's an individual decision that you make. And what you have to do is to be careful not to take your conviction and put it on somebody else. Um, A long time ago, I I decided I wasn't going to drink alcohol because I had young kids. So I'm not saying that's what you should do. I just made that decision. I decided I wasn't going to drink alcohol. Uh, I'll have a NyQuil now and then. (laughs) NyQuil 1997 was a very good year. And I will admit I have several bottles of NyQuil 1997 in my cellar. Um, That's pretty much it for me. Uh, You might have a different view. That's fine. Uh, I've read some scholars who were so strong on abstinence that they would write and they'll tell you that the wine in the New Testament was not fermented and not have alcohol. Well, you know, that's really hard to come to that conclusion. I mean, Jesus turned the water into wine at Cana, and they said, hey, why'd you leave the good stuff for the... I mean, you bring it out first, man. I mean, this stuff's good. This stuff's got a little kick to it. I mean, that's the idea. Um... these guys drank fermented wine. The water wasn't all that great back then, you know, and and they didn't have Ozarka. (laughs) So, you know, they they drank wine. You needed some alcohol. It was a smart thing to do. Uh, So that's kind of the context. Now, here's what's happening when they're having communion. These guys start sloshing down the wine. They're not thinking about what Jesus did for them on the cross. They're getting absolutely hammered. You need some NyQuil there? You all right? (laughs) I know. I've been doing it all day. That's terrible. Um, They were getting hammered. What they were doing is they were abusing the Lord's table. This is very serious. Jesus died for my sin. These guys were believers. They should have known better. But they were abusing it. They were treating it as though it was some kind of toy. And what the Lord was doing was he was disciplining them over their sin. They knew it was wrong. They continued to do it. Now, if you have any question about that, let's read 29 again with 30. 
For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. This is not a time to get drunk at the Lord's table. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Sleep means dead. That's the discipline of God. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. It's just back to James. It's to the left of James. Beginning with verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. I'm in 12.5 of Hebrews. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you will endure that you endure, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, quite a few in Frisco and Plano and any other city in America you want to point out. We have a lot of fathers today who don't care enough about their kids to discipline them. God never does that. He is the good father. He is the great father. Is it not a curse to get on an airplane? And to have a woman sit next to you with a small child about three years old who's on steroids. And she will not discipline the child. It's the most aggravating, frustrating thing in all the world. Verse 8. If you are without discipline, you, me, if we are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you've never been disciplined by God, you're not a son of God. Verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the fathers of spirits and live? Now catch 10. For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. You don't grow in holiness getting drunk at the Lord's table. I remember when I was a young rookie pastor. I remember, um, I've told this story here before. I remember a young girl that I had known since she was in junior high school calling me up one afternoon, absolutely frantic. And she was hysterical. And, 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 she, and, and she said, Steve, she said, she was crying. She was sobbing. She said, Steve, can God forgive any sin? Can he forgive any sin? Any sin? I said, of course he can. I said, where are you? And she told me where she was. She was a couple miles away. I said, can you get over here to the office? I said, do you need someone to come and get you? She said, no, I can be. I said, you come right on over. So she came in. She's probably 19 or 20. She's probably a little older than that, actually. And uh, I remember when she had braces and pigtails and she comes in. She's a wreck. She's an absolute wreck. So God can forgive any sin. Yes, he can forgive any sin. She said, you're absolutely positive. I said, yes, yeah, I'm positive. What, 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 what's happening? She said, I, I just, I, I just, I'm so ashamed. I can't, I can't tell you. And I knew a little bit about what she was doing and where she was working. So I just started asking her some questions. I said, can I, can I ask you some questions? I know this is it's hard for you to talk. Can I just ask you a couple questions? And she said, yeah. 
I said, this sin you're wondering if God can forgive, is it a sexual sin? She's sobbing. I said, this, okay. I said, now this sexual sin that you've committed, did you commit it with a married guy? And she, she wasn't quiet, she was sobbing. The sexual sin that you've committed with a married guy, is he a pastor? And she's 19, 20, 20, I don't know. She was the personal assistant to the big hotshot youth director in our area that had the huge youth group, you know, with kids coming out the walls. And he was having sex with her in the baptistry after church on Wednesday nights. And only, not just with her, but with other staff, young interns, their wives. He was having sex with these young guys from seminary with their wives in the baptistry. Now, that's not called holiness, is it? And he had recently left because he had received a call to a very, very large youth ministry that would have him traveling all over the country because he was so gifted. Well, if you talk with him today, and I have talked with him. I talked with him back then, and I talk with, I've talked with him in the last couple of years. He's a pretty broken guy. He's, he's pretty broken, and he should be broken. And uh, he, he did a lot of damage, and he knows he did a lot of damage. And it's a sad deal. He ruined a lot of people. And he was severely disciplined by God. Severely. He had a friend who was also very gifted in youth ministry that was a sexual predator of young boys. And very winsome guy, very gifted guy. I, I first time I ever saw him, he was speaking to about 10,000 high school students. And then he'd always pick off, he'd meet some kid, some vulnerable, weak kid, and he'd pick him off and take him to a room sodomize the kid. He was disciplined by God. He was one of the first guys in America to die of AIDS. Some of you are sick. Some of you are weak. Some of you have slept. Now it says here in verse 10, for they disciplined us, meaning our fathers, for a short time has seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards. It yields the... the um, I lost my spot there. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When a believer gets into uh, unconfessed um, habitual sin... And, and you know Christ, you should know this. He will not let you stay there. He will discipline you because he's your father. If you had a good father growing up, 
your dad would discipline you if you had a good dad. I remember my dad disciplining me. I was always a little afraid of my dad. That's not a bad thing. I wasn't terrified of my dad, but I was always just a little afraid. I remember my son John telling me about uh, a friend of his. And this kid was out of control. And we were talking about him one night. John was probably 15. We were talking about this kid and what this kid was doing all that. And as we were talking, John said to me, he said, well, you know, Dad, he has no fear of his father. I said, really? He said, he knows his dad's not going to do anything. His dad never has done anything. I mean, he's going to do whatever he wants to do. His, his dad will never lift a finger. And he knows that. He has no fear of his father. You ever heard of a term called the fear of the Lord? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, why would you have fear of the Lord? Because he's a holy God and because he disciplines his sons. Good fathers discipline their sons. Good fathers don't beat their sons. Good fathers don't abuse their sons. Good fathers discipline their sons. And that's what our Father does. As I put this together in James, it appears to me that what's happening is, is that when you have someone, uh, uh, it's not a blanket promise of healing for every situation, but rather it is referring to a situation where you have a believer who is in sin because it goes, let's, let's flip back over to James, because, and, and once again, there are some hints here as you look at the text carefully and you look at the text in its context, um, in verse 16, actually, let's do 15 again. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. That sounds like a blanket promise. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, and as we're to be pointed out, the text literally says, if he's been constantly sinning, they will be forgiven him. Now watch this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. Why would he say that? Because this is a situation where someone has been disciplined and, a, and they're in sin. I like Warren Wearsby's comments here. I, I always appreciate when guys ask me, hey, I, I don't have a lot of money to invest in a commentary. What's a good one? What's a practical one? I always mention to him Warren Wearsby. He handles the text so well, and he's so practical. Listen to what Warren Wearsby says here. What is the prayer of faith that heals the sick? The answer is in 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. That's 1 John 5, 14 through 15. Wearsby says, the prayer of faith is a prayer offered when you know the will of God. The elders would seek the mind of God in the matter and then pray according to his will. As I visit the sick among my congregation, I do not always know how to pray for them. Paul had the same problem. Read Romans 8.26. You know what Romans 8.26 says? We do not know how to pray as we should. That's a great statement. 
Do you always know how to pray? You always know the right thing to say? You always know the right thing to pray for? No. So Paul says, we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, our Pentecostal friends have often used that verse as a text for speaking in tongues in private. I I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I heard that all my life. The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groaning too deep for words. Well, if you look at the text, it's not talking about us praying. It's about the Spirit praying. What does it say? We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself. In Greek, it's, it's the middle voice. And, and, and the middle voice, it's the Spirit himself. It's not you. The Spirit himself, catch this, makes intercession for us, not through us, for us with groanings too deep for words. There are times we don't know how to pray. As I visit the sick among my congregation, I do not always know how to pray for them. Paul had the same problem. Read Romans 8.26. Is it God's will to heal? Is God planning to call his child home? Have you ever thought about that? We always, when someone is struggling and on their deathbed, we we pray, "Oh, oh God, heal them. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Psalm 139 says, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That verse says that God has a plan for my life before I'm ever born. God's determined the moment of my uh, conception, the moment of my birth, and the moment of my death. So if the moment that God has planned for this person to die, in Hebrew says it is appointed for a man once to die. So if, if the moment is, is 90 seconds away, and you're praying by faith, in the name of Christ, that this person be healed, are you praying according to the will of God? No, you're praying against the will of God because God's will before the foundations of the world is in 90 seconds, that guy's going into eternity. We think we always know God's will. What's always God's will? No, 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 it isn't that we be healed. No, it isn't. Not in the way, I mean, sometimes God heals, sometimes God doesn't heal. It's the great mystery. Is this making any sense? Yeah. More than Benny Hinn makes. But if you use that much hairspray, your mind might get clogged too. Those who claim that God heals every case and that it is not his will for his children to be sick are denying both scripture and experience. But where we have the inner conviction from the word and the spirit that it is God's will to heal, then we can pray the prayer of faith and expect God to work. We're not saying God doesn't heal. God can heal. I know of instances where people have been healed. I don't know a lot of them, but I've seen, I've seen some. I mean, it, it was real. It happened. And you say, well, thank you, Lord. We don't praise a healer. We praise the Lord for that. And we just thank him. We've got to be real careful. It appears that this is a believer that is in sin. That's why the sin must be confessed. You say, well, hmm. Then he talks about Elijah. Now, I want you to look at verse 19. 
because I think verse 19 seals it. He says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Interesting passage. What is this talking about? Well, so he's just talking about someone who's, who's sick and you pray for them and they confess their sins and, and, and they'll be healed. Again, not a blanket promise. But then he says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. He's talking about a believer that knows the word that drifts and gets off into something that he shouldn't get off into. Um, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Have you ever had someone who knows you well and who loves you and who is on your team talk to you about something in your life and, and say to you, you know, I, Galatians 6, verse 1. Have you ever had someone approach you and say, you know, I, I, I just wanted to run this by you because I'm a little concerned. Look at Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, can that happen to believers? Can we, there's a difference between getting caught in a trespass and diving headfirst into a trespass. Is there not? Sure. Sometimes we get caught. We didn't mean to, but we get caught. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, now catch this, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So what this is saying is you got a brother, and a brother's in sin. Let's say you have a friend, and you've known this guy, and you go to church with him, and you know you guys have a history, and and um, and this guy, uh, this 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 guy at his work, he's got an administrative assistant, and you know, but you notice that it seems like there's more to it than just a working relationship. It seems like they spend a lot of time together. And you know this guy, you know his wife, you know his kids, this guy's a Christian. He just seems to be hanging out with her. He just seems, uh, you know, he, he, doesn't go get, he doesn't go to Subway and get a sandwich for himself. He takes her with him, and they go over there and they sit and they talk. And you get a little concerned about that. Because it, it just doesn't seem right, and it doesn't quite sit right. And it seems like there's kind of a, a connection that's occurring there. So what do you do about that? Well, well, who am I to judge? Well, I'm not going to get involved. You remember Kitty Genovese? Anybody remember her? She was that gal on the streets of New York City who was stabbed to death and was screaming out loud. How many years ago was this? 30-some years ago? And no one came to her aid but people shut windows and shut curtains. And that guy just stabbed her to death, and she bled to death on that sidewalk. Hundreds of people heard her scream. Nobody came to her aid. They didn't want to get involved. You have a brother that is drifting, that gets caught. You know what your responsibility is as a Christian? It's to help the guy. Now, you want to be wise in how you approach it. 
But you just can't be passive. You just can't stand by. So I think this is what James is talking about when a brother strays from the truth. Um, let's look at Matthew 18. Let's start, with, um, let's start with verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. This is what's called hyperbole. Jesus is going to an extreme to make a point. You know what Jesus is talking about? Jesus is talking about is sin in our own lives. If if my he's let's just let's talk about the thing everybody deals with as men, where the enemy deals with every guy in this room is sexual temptation. And it always begins. It's sexual temptation, and sexual temptation, you know. How many times did it start with the eyes? It starts all the time with the eyes. So, so what did Jesus say? He said, if your eye offends you, put on sunglasses. That's not what he said. He said, if your eye offends you, what do you do? Pluck it out. Now he's using hyperbole. He's saying, listen, you can't fool around with sin. You can't do it. So you, you see some gal, you know, who's attractive and walking around and well, what do you do? Well, you don't, you don't gaze. You, 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 you can't help seeing her. Um, I, I don't remember which book it's in. It, it might be, um, what's Artiburn's book? Every Man's Battle. Doesn't he talk about the bounce principle? Yeah, the, yeah. So what do you do? You see some chick. You see her, you can't help it. So what do you do? You see her and you bounce. You look away. You do what doesn't come naturally. See, that's, that's, you know what you're doing? You're, you're controlling yourself. You're controlling your eyes. And, and, and it's possible to do that. It's hard, but it's possible. It's a discipline that you begin to develop in your life. But, but see, so often we give ourselves permission just to look and to look and to look and to look. You have to, you have to train yourself to look away. It's like that... Uh, Secret Service agent when, when President Reagan was shot outside the Hilton. And you recall that video. When shots ring out, what is the natural tendency? Hit the floor, hit the deck. That's everyone's natural reaction. You saw it in slow motion a hundred times. I have two. Shots ring out. There was that Secret Service agent standing to the side of the limo. The shots rang out. He's standing there. He's got his earpiece. He's standing there just looking. Shots ring out, slow motion. You see him blink twice, fight off his natural reaction, which is to hit the deck. He goes against his natural instinct, and he actually turns toward the shot, takes a shot. Everybody else hit the floor. Why didn't he hit the floor? 
he had trained himself to overcome his natural tendencies. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, sometimes we're not successful in training ourselves to handle our temptations. And then what happens is we keep going down the road in temptation, and then here's where a friend who loves us and is concerned about us will notice what's going on. So then when a friend notices it, so I haven't judged myself, I haven't handled it myself, somebody else is going to notice it. So then what is their responsibility? Verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. What did Galatians 6 say? It talked about restoring a brother. You're not jumping on the guy's case. You're trying to restore this guy. You're trying to pull him back. Hey, man, you're going... Hey, you know, there are places where you can swim in the Niagara River. But there are places you shouldn't swim in the Niagara River. And there is actually a point on the Niagara River that if you go past that point, you're not turning around. It's not physically possible to turn around. So if you see some guy a mile upstream from that bridge where the sign is, um, it would be a wise thing to say, to say something to him, would it not? Because the current is moving him down, and he may not even know the current's moving him down. The longer you wait to say something, the further down he's getting to the point of no return. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, now this doesn't obviously happen in, you know, in three hours. This is a process. But you have a brother who is strained. What? Go back to James. There's a principle, guys, that Scripture interprets Scripture. You interpret the obscure in light of the clear. So James 5, let's read that again, keeping those other verses in mind. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, well, that's Matthew 18. That's Galatians 6. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. We say, wait a minute, is this guy a believer? Well, I think it's written to believers, yeah. What do you mean he'll save his soul from death? Well, the guys in 1 Corinthians 11 that never judged themselves at the Lord's table and maybe never listened to a brother and maybe never listened to the two or three or maybe never had anyone approach them, they never did walk away from their sin. And what does the Scripture say? Many of you are weak, many of you are sick, and some of you sleep. In other words, God's taken you. See how that works? Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So here's the question. When someone who loves you approaches you about an area of your life, I'm not talking about someone that's on your case and someone who's been against you for a long time. No, I'm talking about someone who loves you and who would die for you and someone who's on your team. I'm talking about your wife. Every once in a while, Mary will offer to me constructive criticism. 
Now, when she does that, she's underlining the word constructive. You know what word I'm underlining? Criticism. That's what you do when you're uh, a wuss. Hey, she's not against me. She's for me. Right? Most guys in here, your wife's for you. Wants you to win. She loves you to death. Or you got a good buddy, and they're talking, you know, let's say the lunch thing. Maybe, have you ever had someone come to you and say, hey, you know, I'm not sure you see this. Man, I'm for you 100%. Have you thought at all about this? I'm not sure this is what you want to be doing in your life. Now, the question is, how do you respond? How do you respond? This is what separates the men from the boys. It's how the Spirit of God works in our lives. It's how he saves us. We're all prone to wander. We're all prone to leave the God we love. But you see, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God works in our lives to keep us from sin. Uh, I should be growing and maturing and judging myself and looking away and doing all these things. But when I don't do that, he'll use someone else in the body, someone who knows me, someone who I trust. And they'll come. You know, guys, I, I, here's pretty much how I live my life. When, when I hear the same thing two or three times in a short period of time from, from people around me, I figure God's trying to get my attention. And when someone who loves me and is on my team comes and says something to me, hey, have you considered this? You know, this may not be the way you want to go. Or, you know, when you do that, it's giving this impression. Do you bow up? Do you get kind of mad? Do you get kind of, or, or do you listen? Because you know their hearts. Can I tell you something about the guys in 1 Corinthians 11 who are getting sloshed at the Lord's table? And I'm going to assume somebody talked to him, and they didn't listen. And I'm going to assume that maybe two or three other guys went and talked to him, and they didn't listen. I, I don't know, but let's assume that. And they didn't listen, and they didn't listen. So what happened? Some of them were weak. Some of them were sick. Some of them died. When I was a young pastor. This guy was coming in to meet with me. I'm like 30. This guy's like 65. Big, big shot in the Christian community. Big money, big giver. Had his own Christian camp. Uh, gave a, to a lot of ministries in this part of the country where he lived. Was he coming in to talk with me about discipling some young men or, um, um, you know, scholarshipping some young inner city kids to go to his camp? No, we were meeting to talk about... Uh, why it was that this man who known the Lord and walked with the Lord and been so greatly used by the Lord and been married for 45 years and had four adult kids and grandchildren, why he was sleeping with a 19-year-old girl who had come to his camp two years before and come to Christ, and now he was in an open, immoral relationship with her. That's what we were meeting to talk about. He was, he's a big guy. He's very winsome, very sure of himself, very cocky. He's 65, I'm 30. And he comes in, and we're talking, and, and uh, he starts giving me some scripture verses. 
And he said, well, I, I know this seems, I, I know what this looks like. I said, you know what it looks like? And he goes, yeah, I, I know what it looks like. He said, I know people are talking, but you have to understand the context. I said, I didn't know there was a context of sexual immorality. <laughs> he said, well, that's a little harsh. I'm paraphrasing, because this was 30 years ago. That's a little harsh. There's more to it than meets the eye. I, oh, I'm sure there is. Oh, yeah. You're 65, slightly overweight. She's 19, trim. I bet there's a lot more than meets the eye here. No one can figure out. No one would want to know. But all we know is you're hopping in a sack with this chick. And she came up to your camp and finds Christ, and you're sleeping with her. And here's what I understand. I understand that uh, your daughters have all talked to you. Yeah, your wife attempted, but you just bowl her over because you haven't listened to her for years. You're a pretty strong man. I'm just wondering, can you tell me what's, why are you doing this? He goes, well, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of history. And he, we kept kind of verbally jousting. And, and at one point, he got real mad at me. I'll never forget this. He was, he was, I'm on this side of the desk, and he's over here. And at one point, he, he lost it. He just lost it. He went, just like that. And he said, don't I have a right to be happy? I said, where'd you ever get that idea? I said, you know what you sound like? You sound like some 60s hippie at University of California at Berkeley. I said, you're a right-wing fundamentalist. I mean, you're an old-school guy. You're not a hippie, but you sound like them. Don't I have a right to be happy? What are you, off Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley? That's not you. What do you mean, don't I have a right to be happy? That's what, you do your thing, and I'll do mine. And if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. <laughs> That's the gestalt prayer, man. Why don't you go down to Big Sur and get in a hot tub? Now, you know what I said? You never hang out with those people, but you, but, but you sound just like them. What do you mean, don't I have a right to be happy? Let me ask you something. How about your wife? Doesn't she have a right to be happy? You've been married 45 years. You're throwing her away like a paper towel. You're embarrassing your kids to death. And you know what really concerns me for you? And he said, well, you know, son, I've been, a long, I've been around a long time. I, I, I've been doing ministry since before you were born. I said, so that justifies sleeping with this chick? Is that what you're telling me? You're mature enough to sleep with her? I said, here's what concerns me. A lot of people have come to you and talked to you, and in your heart of hearts, you know this is wrong. You know what concerns me? Is that God inevitably is disciplining your life, and you're not responding. And when you don't respond, he is going to ratchet up the discipline. He got up and he walked out. Weeks later, um, he collapsed in his front yard. And he was dead. Now, I can't prove anything. Um, I, I, think, I, I think he was a 1 Corinthians 11 situation. 
I don't want to be a 1 Corinthians 11 situation. And you don't either. So what do we do? We respond to the Spirit of God when he talks to us about our sin. So that we can be the men that God wants us to be. Would you agree with that? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for truth and grace and mercy. Thank you that you don't leave us alone when we want to go our own way. Help us to keep tender hearts towards you and uh, spirits that are quick to obey the summons of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be teachable men. Really teachable. Really teachable guys who will listen and who will ponder what someone that we know is on our team. When they care enough about us to say something for our good, help us to be man enough to listen and to heed and to make the correction. It'll save our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.